This is an AMI podcast. Hey, Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. Good morning. It's Thursday, December the 7th, 2023. Welcome to Now with Dave Brown, coming to you on AMI-tv. I'm Dave Brown. Let's hit the horns and go. little described video to start this show. Uh, there is always a plant here in Studio 7 with me. It's usually a little further away. Today it's right over my left shoulder, encroaching on my space. It almost feels like a horror film over here, like Evil Dead. The vines and the plants are coming for me and taking over. So uh, before you know it, at the rate things are going, the show will be called Now with Plant. And uh, some of you might argue it would be a better show. Coming up on the show today, fertility rates are falling in Canada for a variety of reasons. Jenny Bovard considers the data and shares her perspective on the child-free movement. Switching to the academic world, what can students do to manage their stress during final season? Elizabeth Moeller will give you some tips. And there has been an increase in multi-generational living in Canada. Don Dickinson explores the issue in a preview of Voices of the Walrus. The show begins after that described video notes with the top story of the day. Something to put on your radar this morning. The federal government will reveal their plans around an oil and gas emissions cap this morning. Energy and Natural Resources Minister Jonathan Wilkinson explains why it's taken so long to put the policy together. Well, I mean, part of the reason is that you need to to give uh, organizations in the oil and gas sector time to adjust, time to plan, time to actually acquire technology. Um, So there will be some time for adoption, but there will be a significant uh, reduction in greenhouse gas emissions from the oil and gas sector by 2030. Meanwhile, the Conservatives are threatening to delay work and hold up billions of dollars in spending if the federal government does not make drastic changes to its carbon pricing. They're starting off by introducing as many as 20,000 amendments to a government bill that would create sustainable jobs as part of the transition to a net-zero economy. Conservative leader Pierre Polyev took direct aim at the Prime Minister. Mr. Trudeau, you're going to have to come to terms with something. Over the Christmas period... Whether through a walk in the snow or while you're sitting next to a warm fire, think about this reality. There will be a carbon tax election. I will win the carbon tax election, and whether you like it or not, I will axe the tax. Government House Leader Karina Gold lays out some of the work that is being held up. Whether it is C-56 on housing and competition, even though they voted for it, they spent all their time obstructing it in the House. Whether it is the Canada-Ukraine Free Trade Agreement, which again, we tried to debate on Friday. Again, they obstructed it the moment that they could. They are not working for Canadians. They're just throwing temper tantrums and they're trying to hold Canadians back. Okay, let's switch off of politics to something a little more tangible for you, and that's cost of living. The annual food price report has been released. Nicole Reese cooks up this report. 
The 14th annual report by Dalhousie University, the University of British Columbia, the University of Guelph and the University of Saskatchewan predicts food prices will rise between 2.5% and 4.5% next year as inflation continues to moderate. However, project lead Sylvain Charlebois says grocers will be in fierce competition next year to try and win back loyalty as customers have been shopping around more to try and save money. They were violently affected by higher mortgage uh, payments and higher uh, higher rents as well. The report predicts an average family of four will spend around $700 more on food next year than they did this year. Nicole Reese, the Canadian Press, Toronto. Speaking of food, McDonald's has big expansion plans. You could say they're supersizing their footprints. Rita Foley serves up the story. Even for the world's largest hamburger chain, that is an unprecedented pace of growth. McDonald's plans to have 50,000 restaurants in operation worldwide by the end of 2027. The company is also announcing a partnership with Google Cloud. That will help it speed up automated services, and it's expected to make things easier for its employees. McDonald's same-store sales rose nearly 9% worldwide in the past few months, though U.S. traffic fell slightly. McDonald's is focusing on core menu items like those quarter-pounders and french fries, which, according to McDonald's, make up 65% of sales system-wide. I'm Rita Foley. Oh, I love me some Mickey D's. Okay, let's get to the daily polls. At Accessible Media is where you can vote on Twitter. At Accessible Media Inc. is where you can vote on Facebook. Yesterday, I tried to get into a little bit of positivity with you, and you would not have it. So the question was, what does your city slash region do well when it comes to accessibility? 14% of you said building entrances, 43% of you said elevators, 43% of you said audible crossing signals, 0% of you said accessible websites. But it was in the comment section where uh, y'all really came at me uh, and and fought against my premise. Uh, A lot of you felt your cities are doing very poorly when it comes to accessibility. So over on Facebook at Accessible Media Inc. Craft and Deborah says, not much, if anything. John chimes in. They're good at asking the questions. They're poor on action. Leona writes in, to answer this truth truthfully, it would be, quote, as little as possible. My city is a retirement community, a registered age-friendly city, and marketed as a jewel in the wilderness. City buildings are compliant with the AODA and the Ontario Building Code, but that about sums it up. Our AAC has had its meeting schedule curtailed to once every quarter and even the much newer age-friendly committee now only meets four times a year but we are very good users of yellow paint allison comments in literally nothing I'm sorry. I'm sorry that I'm laughing. It's just y'all really hated this question yesterday. And over on Twitter at Accessible Media, Matisse tweets: My region added an overlay to their website to make it quote accessible. I cringe every time I have to go on it. Okay, I apologize. I know I asked you a question. You didn't like it, but I still appreciate the responses. I'm laughing because I love you and I love a little bit of discourse. And I really enjoy when you get involved in the comment section. So please don't stop at accessible media on twitter at accessible media inc on facebook over to today's topic you just heard me talking a little bit about food and this morning as i was meandering my way up to work i uh, caught an ad on a podcast for a meal delivery kit service and i was thinking to myself oh 
I have some friends who use that one who are raving about it. I'm wondering if I should name it. I'll, I'll consider this moving forward. But it got me curious if you have ever tried a meal delivery kit. And if yes, what was your experience like? Yes or no? So you know what? For the sake of putting the cards on the table here, the advertisement that I heard was for a service called Factor, which essentially sends you refrigerated or frozen meals that you can pop in the microwave. And the average cost is about 5 to $10 per meal. A few of my friends use it. They really, really like it. And I've been hearing it uh, advertised on podcasts for a couple months now. And, and I'm genuinely curious, but Alex Smythe, I do not have a microwave and I've never used one of these kits. So I'm not sure if I'm ready to start. Yeah, so I I have used uh, uh, some of these kits through through the time they've been around. I actually did a story with AMI this week, a few years ago, just kind of exploring uh, the pros and cons with some of these different kits and and kind of stacking them head to head. And so I I remember distinctly doing um, Good Food and uh, Hello Fresh. Uh, I think there may have been a third one. I can't fully remember. It was a couple years ago. Um, and there, there are a lot of similarities between them in terms of like the type of meals you could order, like the process, the cost was relatively similar. I liked the elements that they basically made things very straightforward and easy to, to follow and to cook. I'm someone who enjoys cooking, so mm -hmm. it was a, a novel experience for me. Would it be something I would jump to to kind of really go in and sign up for long term no just because i i have enough confidence in the kitchen that i can make things on my own I have my own recipes my own shopping uh that i like to do but for someone who doesn't like to cook doesn't really know how to cook well wants something very clear and simple there are uh, great options available in this space um, and, and we even looked at things like, you know, accessibility and like, okay, well, there's meal, um, meal plans online, or, or you can get access to through an app or something like that, that you could use a screen reader to track along with, which I think is also a very mm -hmm. important thing. Some had it, some didn't. So uh, there's a bunch of different factors to consider, but you know, if, if you're looking at something, there are a number of options available. And typically around this time of year, they have some pretty good deals or, yeah. or promotions going on. Laura Bain, I'll circle back to something here about the notion of the microwave and the simplicity, because I think what Alex is describing with those services still means I'm going to spend half an hour in the kitchen or 45 yeah. minutes in the kitchen, which which sort of eliminates the, the, the purpose for me. I, I want something that has real ingredients in it that I can make in four or five minutes and then get on with my day, my very busy executive corporate lifestyle, don't you know? But Laura, what about you? Have you tried any of these meal delivery kits? Um, yeah, so I used HelloFresh. I started using it about uh, two years ago. It was around the time where they had those promotions at the start of the school year, and you could get, you know, eight free meals or something like that. And this is one where you do do, uh, you know, you get ingredients and you um, do cooking, and there wasn't any microwaves involved, I don't think. Uh, you know, from what I remember. But for me, the benefit of this is I found that it really helped me in overcoming the challenges that I was experiencing in terms of getting to the grocery store and the accessibility of getting my groceries. Yes. Um, and if you factor in the cost of getting an Uber or a taxi or the cost of Instacart, I found that the cost of the HelloFresh wasn't that bad. I think if you're a savvy shopper, you could do better. It was about $85 for six meals, but you know, some of those meals would have fish or meat, or I tend to lean into the veggie options, but I do find it hard to get 
you know, <laughs> groceries for the week that has protein in it and all that for that cost. Um, so for me, it worked out really well. And I found that the app was accessible. It worked with voiceover. It was easy to pick out my meals. Now, I noticed a few months ago that for me, the quantity and the quality of the meals started slipping a little bit. And I think mm. it was probably because they were trying to keep their prices somewhat stable while their ingredient costs were going way up. Right, right. So I had a few sort of disappointing experiences. Um, you know, I also have a partner that I live with now, which I didn't when I started. And so that's made it easier for me to do my grocery shopping. Um, but with, you know, it being winter, being harder to get out, being really busy this time of year with assignments I have been looking at it again and um you know I, I would I would use it again I wouldn't you know and I would recommend it to anybody if you can afford it I think it's a very accessible option to get just a box of food delivered to your uh yeah. you know to your lobby on a day that you designate or onto your front porch on a day that you designate yeah, Laura, I, th I think you tapped into something there that, that is important that I probably should have said explicitly on the front end of this conversation. There is an accessibility component to this conversation. I love me a long romantic walk through the grocery store. What I don't <laughs> love is carrying heavy bags home, right? No, no, I'm lucky. I'm fortunate. I will always acknowledge my privilege. I'm a big, strong guy who uh, lives who lives with, uh, well, works next to a grocery store that's walking distance to where I live, right? I, not everybody has that fortune or has that privilege. And I do think that the notion of getting food to your house brought to you in a prompt manner is worth something. Because even when you talk about some of those other services, uh, these ones I will not name, <laughs> I've already given enough free plugs in this first segment of the show to different services, without fail, the shopper ends up messing up your order, brings the wrong thing, doesn't find the thing. What I like about a service like, like this, like these meal kit deliveries, is like there really is, to a certain degree, a quality control and bringing these things to your house that maybe you don't want to fill up your grocery bag with every single time you're going to the store. I'm really, I'm so delighted that you brought in that accessibility component to the story because it probably does need to be stated explicitly. Well, I really felt like it gave me independence at that time because at that time I was finding every week I would have to ask someone to take me grocery shopping and sort of coordinate that. And this just gave me complete autonomy to like pick out my meals, pick out what I wanted to eat. No one was going to look at or judge me on that. Not that the people that were helping me grocery shopping were, but you know, it was just a, an independent experience. Um, and then having it dropped off, it just uh, removed a lot of those kind of barriers that yeah. I was experiencing yeah. getting, getting really, food. Yeah, really well put. Interesting question here. I mean, I say that. It's a question that I asked. So, of course, I'm going to think it's interesting. <laughs> but that's ego, that's ego Brown. That's Diva Brown coming out on a Thursday morning. But at Accessible Media on Twitter, at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook, that's where you vote on the poll. Have you tried a meal delivery kit? And if yes, what was your experience like? If you don't feel like voting on social media, you're welcome to chime in via email at uh, feedback at ami.ca, feedback at ami.ca, or give the show a phone call, 1-866-509-4545, 1-866-509-4545. Coming up next, there has been an increase in multi-generational living in Canada. Don Dickinson explores the issue in a preview of Voices of the Walrus. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv.
Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. The housing crisis continues to be front and center in Canada. More people are making the decision to gravitate towards multi-generational living situations. There's a lot of factors that go into making that decision, but it's not a new phenomenon. The topic is explored in the latest edition of Voices of the Walrus on AMI-audio. Don Dickinson is the content curator for that show. Hey, good morning, Don. Nice to chat with you once again. Hi, Dave. How are you? <laughs> I am excellent, Don. So the first article is titled, Just So You Know, I Love My Mother by Kevin Chong. <laughs> I think that's something I can get down with. Uh, by the way, Mom, I'm sorry that I missed your phone call yesterday. I'll call you back later today. Uh, she's listening right now, Don. Uh, Don, what's the history of multi-generational living? Well, um, they did a report, the United Nations did a report, and they said that basically it's very much the norm in a lot of, you know, a great deal of the world, right? I mean, people in Africa and Asia, Latin America, the Caribbean. Um, scholars say that in the United States and in Britain, the nuclear family is a relatively new phenomenon, uh, as occurred as the industrial uh, uh, uh as industrialization came about um, because of the splintering of the households, you know, um, you know, the, the, the fathers and whatnot were, uh, were uh, going into the cities and uh, away from the farms and in other places that shift never really occurred. So the UN found that over 90% of seniors live with families in, in, in a lot of the world, places like Afghanistan and Pakistan and, and all the aforementioned uh, countries. So, you know, it's a real mix around the world about, as to multi-generational families. What are some of the key Canadian stats around multi-generational living? Well, in Canada, there are almost 442,000 uh, multi-generational households, according to the 2021 uh, census, uh, a number that has swollen, uh, no kidding, by about 50% uh, since uh, um, uh, 20, uh, 2001, um, 2001, the figure would increase further if we expanded the idea of multi-generational living to include families residing in adjacent properties, mm. you know, places like laneway homes and whatnot. Uh, a lot of the... Um, you know, you, you you hear a lot about uh, nowadays uh, because, of course, the government is allowing it. Right? Is they the, these uh, you know grandparent little homes and and whatnot built being mm -hmm. built on larger mm -hmm. sites? You know, so that families are, can be closer. But they're not sitting in each other's lap, you know. <laughs> yeah, that would that would get a little bit a little bit tight. Uh, Don, I know there are a bunch of different factors that play into this, but why? Is that number on the increase in the last 21, 22 years in Canada? Well, there's a number of factors, Dave. Um, obviously, uh, an aging population is one of them. Uh, and rising life expectancy, uh, increasing house costs. I mean, that's a, a huge yeah. one. Oh, yeah. And, oh, boy. <laughs> you know, everybody kind of uh, deciding that it's much better to share a home and uh, shifts in the country's cultural composition. Uh, Multi-general households are more uh, likely to be found among immigrants and indigenous communities. And, uh, you know, so you've got all of those factors coming into play. And um, yeah, I mean, uh, you know, let's face it, it's just a cheaper way of living. 
You know, Don, there's something beautiful about it, though, right? Put it, keeping families closer together. I was so lucky growing up that most of my family, like most of my family, not everybody, but most of my immediate family lived within about a three or four kilometer walk of each other. And and that and that's like the far reaches of the distance between us. And that's not quite multi-generational living, but now I think about the situation where I'm at now, if there was ever a time where I needed to maybe get into a triplex or a duplex or a semi-detached situation to be with my parents as they age, like there's something beautiful about that, getting to spend time with your family. And if it can lower your cost of living, that's just an added bonus. Oh, yeah. But, you know, as the title suggests, uh, just so you know, I love my mother, which I thought was adorable by, <laughs> yeah. by Kevin Wong. Uh, they, um, there are many challenges, Dave, many challenges, you know, because especially with those children that have gone out on their own, shouldn't even say children, I mean, young adults, right, that have gone out on their own and made their own way and become independent of their parents. And then, of course, the situation uh, makes it such that they have to move back home. So the the reason why he says, uh, just so you know, I love my mother, is that in his particular case, it was very challenging, um, you know, getting back into the household and taking on that role again. He said he instantly felt like he was 14. Yeah, yeah. Mm, that's that's a that's, that's a good point too. I, I I will I will tell you this. During the early days of the pandemic, my parents were asking me to come back and move in with them in Ottawa. They're like, "You're lonely in Toronto. Come live in our basement." And I was like, "Hard pass, hard pass. No, that's not happening. <laughs> that's not have. I love you guys dearly, but I'm not going to go live in your basement. I, you will make me go bonkers, and I will make you go bonkers. Uh, so let, let's wait till you age out a little bit further. <laughs> hey, Don, yeah. let's let let's move let's move off of how for a second and talk about a real this next article I I, I said oh I'm going to give it a little peruse before I talk to Don and then I read the whole thing like syllable for syllable word for word it was so interesting to me the next article spins a tale about the Canadian record chain Sunrise Records it explores how the chain has managed to hold on as the music and fiddle physical media industry has just like gone through an avalanche of change. So the article's called Still Spinning by Richard Trapunsky. So I I don't think this first question is necessary what led to the demise of physical media. We know it's streaming, it's digital. But what I think is so interesting from the article is how did this chain succeed? Well, HMV and Future Shop and all these other companies were falling apart. Well, it it was an extremely interesting article, and the uh, and the author states that the reason uh, Sunrise has thrived was HMV um, kind of lost track of its core product. You know, uh, they started going into oh well, like a lot of uh, uh, stores do, they started diversifying. They were focusing on small housewares and blankets and other lifestyle products. Um, records are. Hardly the thing. For, uh, well, basically, what they did was they they went into other areas that weren't related. Now, uh, he does state in the article uh, that records are hardly the thing that is not uh, just exclusive to Sunrise because they do, in fact, do other stuff. They do toys and they do posters and T-shirts and whatnot, but it's all somehow um, tied in with the product. Yes. So basically, they've they've 
they focused on the product uh, very much so albums, uh, you know, physical media. And uh, yeah, they just and right now, you know, as we all know, surprisingly, there's a huge boom in vinyl. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. There, there's a huge boom in vinyl. There's a boom in CDs. People still want physical media. Like there, There's still an appetite for it, whether it's at the collector level or even just the recreational level as well. Don, I love what you're talking about there, though, and this is one of the most important business lessons that I was ever taught, and it's the idea of a core identity of a business. If you are a record and music store or a music, a music store, that, that is that's trying to sell music to people, yes, you can play around with toys and T-shirts and posters, but it better be part of your core identity. You go yes. to Sunrise Record to love music and buy music, not blankets and weirdnesses and all this stuff. You go to love music. And I'll never forget this example that was cited to me about Southwest Airlines, the low-cost American uh, air carrier, where a couple of years ago, uh, this anecdote's about 15 years, old, uh, 15 years old now, they're having a huge board meeting, and they come back with this customer survey data. And the customer survey data says, hey, people on, on, on Southwest Airlines flights would really like a complimentary meal served to them on flights over 90 minutes. And and this and then you know one of the one of the uh, VPs goes and you know we can provide that at five dollars extra per ticket, and everyone in the room says oh only five dollars extra that's not too bad customers will pay that and the CEO bangs his hand on the table I'm gonna bang my hand on my table, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen, Southwest Airlines' core identity and value is we sell the lowest cost airline ticket. And it does not matter if this price increase is only $5. Does that make us the lowest cost airline ticket? It does not. So customers might tell you they want this, but what we want and what we are is to be the lowest cost carrier possible. And again, you might say, oh, I would love that free meal as well, but it's a reminder about core ideas identity of a business. It, it, it's so critical to what makes a business or a TV show or a radio show or a service, whatever you do, you have to know your core identity. Yeah, absolutely, Dave. You hit it on the head. That's, uh, you know, that's why they succeeded, you know, in a time, time when everyone else failed. But, but there's, there is also a personal side to this story because Doug Putman is one of the characters who's put forward in this article. What did he do to save Sunrise Records? Well, <laughs> it was a long uh, process. Um, Sunrise uh, was, in fact, almost swept away uh, after it's closed its flagship store on Young Street. Do you remember Sunrise, by the no, way? No, no, Montrealer over here, Dawn. I, uh, oh, yeah, I, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, no, sorry. Yeah, I do. Um, it was purchased by a then 30-year-old uh, businessman, as you said, Doug Putman, a music fan. Uh, Putman still saw life in the chain, and then he expanded operations across Canada. Okay, so that was uh, the year uh, Sunrise's one-time rival HMV Canada entered receivership. Okay, so this is just a matter of really good timing and announced its plans to close its stores across the country. Putman swooped in 
good man that he was, and bought leases for 70 of those HMV outposts, all of them in malls, and converted them to Sunrise. Um, so basically, it was, you know, he, he, he was just one of those visionaries that thought, no, this is not a dead industry. This still has life in it. And then he proceeded to expand on it, you know? So oh, good for him. So smart. It's so smart. People already knew that was where you were supposed to go to buy music. So just keep it there. Whether it's, whether it's called Sunrise or HMV, people still want to buy those sweet, sweet records. Hey, Don, these articles were fantastic. Like, really, really great edition of Voices of the Walrus. Thank you for a preview. I know I kept you over a little bit today because I just love these articles so much. Have a lovely day, lovely weekend. Talk to you next week. Okay, you too, Dave. Bye-bye. That's Don Dickinson, content curator of Voices of the Walrus. You can catch the show daily at 11 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-audio. Coming up next, switch into the world of academia. What can students do to manage their stress during finals? Elizabeth Moeller is a longtime academic who can offer up some tips. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Turning to the world of academia and schooling, it is crunch time for students. Finals are in full swing, a lot of work, and a lot of stress. So what can a student do to manage their stress? And what can schools offer to students to help with that stress as well? It's a two-way street, you know. Elizabeth Moeller lives, breathes, and eats academia. Elizabeth is the founder of EM Disability Consulting. Hey, good morning, Elizabeth. Good morning, Dave. It is the thick of marking for those in TA land <laughs> and exam land for those on the other side of the coin. <laughs> yeah, I didn't. I didn't mean to leave TAs out of this. Uh, y'all have y'all okay. have y'all have your stresses too, uh, Elizabeth. I remember final season, especially when I was in university, being really, really difficult. Just it, the time management was brutal. I, I would always end up in these situations where I'd end up with three or four exams in one week sometimes uh, two in a day, like just awful, awful, awful. What do you remember about final season? Yeah, I think just before I answer that question, just to acknowledge this is a this is a heavy time for students uh, and, and learners. And so, you know, it's it's important to take some time and that you obviously are if you're a listener land or vortex viewership, um, just just to sort of reset. And so I just want to acknowledge that. What I what I remember is big rooms with maybe hundred plus people, um, very much a lot of sort of surveillance around like, don't cheat, don't cheat, don't cheat, which made the anxiety even higher. Um, I remember very, like you said, very crunched schedules. And I remember often not getting my exam scheduled until very close to that December timeline. Yes. I, yeah, like it was, and, and then I remember the crunch too, if you're in the uh, camp where you need accessibility supports that you're trying to book all of your accommodations for your exams, but you don't maybe have your schedule until the week before the exam. And sometimes the deadline to book had already passed. So that was a really big challenge. You know, I'm glad you brought up the accommodation part of this conversation. I've, I've often said on the show, one of my biggest mistakes in university was not being a little bit more honest with myself about my disability and about my accommodation needs and not developing yeah. a relationship with the Office for Students with Disabilities. But I, I do, I 
I really do remember the, the, the added stress because your whole environment was going to be different if you wanted yes. to write the exam in the big room with everybody else. And sometimes it was a building that maybe you'd never been to before on campus. Mm -hmm. And I was like, wait, where is the Wong building? <laughs> we have that building on campus? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I remember that too. And, and I did write with accommodated exams. So I either did my exam orally with the professor. So you would meet the professor in their office and they would they would ask you the questions. It would be more like a conversation, oh, interesting. Uh, which I loved. Yeah, I love that. But I also remember doing exams in the access center and that had a layer of stress because of course the computer didn't have the software that I used or the computer didn't work or the right, proctor didn't right. know how to get. So there's all that layer of stress too, to your point about different environment that makes it really extra challenging for those with sight loss and other disabilities too. Elizabeth, I'm going to put a couple questions together here. Again, knowing and understanding that my experience is 20 years old at this point, right? Like, it's it's not contemporary. But my feeling on this is that schools and programs and profs expect way too much mm -hmm. from university students because you've just come off writing four or five 20-page papers all due the last week of November, and all of a sudden you're walking into exam season. Like 75% of your grade is determined over the course of like a 21-day period. How do you think yeah. schools themselves could address the stress that students are feeling this time of year? Yeah, absolutely. And I think there's a couple of things that, that I've tried to take up in my own practice. So thinking about what are we wanting students to get out of this course, this, this learning program, this activity, and does it have to be a big exam? Like, do we really need to have hundreds of people crammed into a gym to write an exam? Or could it be a learning activity that students choose from? So you have an option of three or four things. Students choose what works for them with their schedule, and they submit it. And I recognize from the marking perspective, because I say this is somebody that also has marked learning activities, that that's a lot more work. But I think schools really need to think about what we're asking people to do and what the, what, what are the essential requirements here. I think the other really big piece, and I, I'm, I don't in any way um, condone or endorse cheating, but we're getting into this very strict surveillance culture that's making it very stressful for students. Mm. And frankly, sometimes the surveillance culture is not accurate or it has biases towards specific groups. Um, I know many people can't use software on their computer to track um, you know, their, their, their progress because it, it crashes with their assistive technology. So I think that's a big piece that schools need to think about. Like, what are we wanting students to do? Um, and how are we building a community of trust? Like, are we just saying, don't cheat, don't cheat, and we're going to punish you, and we're going to watch you? Or are we really helping each other to be accountable? So I think those are some concrete things. But I also think it's interesting to me around exam time at my institution, we'll see like happy dogs, and we'll see like booster juices and all these free stress workshops or workshops around, you know, managing time, time management, it, those, it's, are, those are it's, great. It, it's the oxygen bar. We've got the oxygen <laughs> bar yeah, and the puppies exactly. like and the student Vegas. commons. Yeah. <laughs> and the balloons. Don't forget the balloons, those balloon animals, although those scare me because they pop. But um, <laughs> what I... What I want to see is um, less sort of reactive, like let's put all this stuff in place for a week, which actually I find to be over hyper stimulating and things throughout the term that really build in wellness. So more mm. wellness weeks. I want to see more uh, communities of care and more cultures of care in, in the classroom. Um, and as a TA, we're limited in what we can do. It's not our course, but I, I want to see professors and students building trust. I show up every day. You trust. I do my best. I trust you're doing your best. Let's talk. Um, deadline. I think I can't mark every assignment in one day anyway. So let's talk about, you know, do we have a week 
time period where things are due and people within that week can submit. Like, yeah, what are we doing yeah. To, to, yeah, to create our best students who can come to school and put their best selves forward? I like your idea of alternative uh, activity schedules or alternative uh, uh, grading and testing and assignments, different models to be played with, because going to a bit of positivity here, the Ontario College model in radio broadcasting was incredible. Pretty much every course was just Here's something, a little something you have to do every single week, right? A little assignment here, a little assignment there for every class. Sometimes it could even be done during class time, which I really, really appreciated as someone yeah, who, will, awesome. who will naturally procrastinate if, give, if, given, if given the opportunity. And then maybe towards the end of the year, there were uh, some what you would call sort of amalgamation assignments, right? Where some of the work that you did earlier in the year was going to be put into something bigger, packaged together. And I, I liked that model because I'm a very task-driven individual. Mm -hmm. It so builds I, on each other. Exactly, first. exactly. Yes, and yes. it's so much easier to track your progress as a student, as someone trying to put yeah. the work together. Yeah. You know, Dave, what you said there really resonates with me because I feel like often when I was an undergrad and even the exams I've had to administer as a TA, it's like 75% of your mark or 50% of your mark. And what if you were just having an off day? I want students throughout the term to know what their progress is. Like a participation mark is one thing I see a lot. It's like, but how are, how are we measuring that? And how are we telling students each week, you know, Dave, here's where you're doing really great with your radio broadcasting interview. Here's where you might need to, to, to beef up a little bit. Um, but I feel like like we need to be helping students throughout the term, not just in sort of that, that final stage, but building. So summative and formative assessments where we're giving positive and constructive feedback each week. And then it builds into something and we can catch student learners who are struggling early on and say, okay, I think this is an area where you're struggling, Elizabeth. Let's bring you in and try to get some help from writing services and other support services on yeah, campus. Yeah. Elizabeth, yeah. if I were to offer one piece of advice, it would actually be borrow something that you mentioned on the show yesterday in regards to keeping Ooh. track during application season, one of the things that I used to make a habit of was just having one master sheet of yes. every single date of exam, every single date of final paper, when something was due, where it had to go, maybe just like a little teensy blurb of where I was at progress-wise on it, and just have a list, have a literal checklist of check, 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 check and it feels so good from a stress management point of view to hit those little check marks and check it kept it me off. organized yeah. so my yeah. check it off check it off check it off um, it's like shake it off but not quite yeah. not quite <laughs> but but elizabeth so that that's my one little piece of advice try to get yeah. as organized as you can yeah. but what advice would you offer to students to better manage their stress yeah, I think I think starting early where where possible and trying to put supports in place early. I know it's not always possible possible. And I would say regarding accommodations, do a check-in. This is a good time of year to go, are my accommodations working? Do I need accommodations? Should I think about getting an assessment because I'm really struggling with writing and I'm not sure it's just uh, a me thing, but there might be something a little bit deeper and bigger going on. So I always like to, to call it my accommodation check-in because accommodations are fluid and they can and do change depending on our, what our needs are. So I like to I like to suggest to students my piece of advice, do that accommodation check in with yourself. Elizabeth, thank you for this. It's been great to have a double header of you this week. And yes. you're coming back for a triple header back tomorrow as as co-host of the show. So I uh, talk to you in about 24 hours. Talk to you in about 24 hours, Dave. Have a lovely day. That's Elizabeth Moeller, the founder of EM Disability Consulting. Let's bring in Alex Smythe to find out what's going on in the world of weather.
Alex, you are looking to the north yet again in Nunavut. Yeah, Dave, because last time we looked up north in Nunavut, there were a series of blizzards that were really impacting the region. Well, that script has flipped because starting uh, the month of December off has been extreme heat up north. And in fact, so extreme that they've set monthly records in some places, including Gricefjord, were a whopping 31 degrees above the seasonal weather. 31 degree variance from what it normally should be up north. That's not the only place that was setting uh, monthly records. You also had Arctic Bay, Pond Inlet, and Resolute all setting monthly records. And it was all part of this really unusual pattern that just brought extreme heat up north. Now, the good news is things have since returned back to the seasonal conditions, but it was just such a a wild blip on, on the weather radar to have this variance in temperature to now be back to the seasonal average, which is roughly around minus 20 degrees, depending on the community up north. But it was just a small little kind of story I wanted to bring forward and just highlight just how extreme and how volatile this weather has been throughout the country so far this season. Alex, thank you for this. Appreciate it. That is Alex Smythe. We'll be back a little bit later in the show for the roundtable chat. But coming up next, fertility rates are falling in Canada for a variety of reasons. Jenny Bovard considers the data and shares her perspective. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Stats Canada has released a whole bunch of data about fertility rates. The fertility rate fell to one of its lowest levels in decades in 2020. The pandemic may have been part of that, but recent survey data shows economics are part of it too. 38% of young adults aged 20 to 29 do not think they could afford to have a child in the next three years. There are also people who are consciously choosing to be child-free. These stats caught Jenny Bovard's attention. Jenny is the host of the Low Vision Moments podcast. Hey, good morning, Jenny. Good morning, Dave. How are you? I'm great, Jenny. Thank you for bringing this topic to the table today. Let's start with the data itself. What do you find striking about some of this data? Well, first off, I have to say I feel seen and heard. And really what the data says to me is that priorities are shifting for people in that age range where historically they would be expected to start having children and starting a family in the sense of having children. So another recent study jumped out at me and that one showed that one third of people surveyed said they didn't want to have children ever. So mm. one in three people, I think that's worrisome for some folks on some level when they read that. But again, I feel like this is an important conversation to have. So I'm so glad that we're talking about it today. When we think about our current economic and cultural climate Canadians are doing this real serious cost-benefit pro-con analysis around this massive life choice. It's no longer just assumed that by a certain age, you're going to do certain things and 
it, that includes having children of your own. Yeah, it, it, it's it's so interesting when you put all those data points together because when you think about the economics of the equation, it it like it really matters. And for those sixty six percent of people who do want to have kids, and perhaps economics are stopping them, the ability to even own an apartment or a house that's big enough to have kids in, like that that is a jarring thing. But I think that the, 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 the other thing that you've identified there, the notion of being child-free, the choices that people are able and willing to make, strike me as interesting too. And I, and I think that's a conversation worth having between you and I this morning. And we can lay our cards on the table. Where do you land on the notion of being child-free? Well, first, I'm glad that it's you and I and the people enjoying the show having this conversation and asking these questions as opposed to the Uber driver who insists on knowing who's going to take care of me when I'm older. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, yes, it it is very uncomfortable at times. But I want to say also that parenting can certainly be a beautiful thing, right? I want to acknowledge that if that's what you choose. But you really said something important to me and that's the the choice, right? I love kids. I love spending time with my nephews and my niece. I work with kids in my job as a mentor. Dave, I am a stellar babysitter. Hire me. <laughs> I am so much fun and so responsible. But my family unit consists of my husband and I, our senior cat and our three-year-old lab shepherd mixed dog. It's just us. We have made a conscious decision to be child-free. We are content with that decision that we made long ago. There are a lot of reasons why neither of us is interested in having children. We we can't imagine our lives with all of those added responsibilities, budgeting the time, budgeting the money, the thought of childbirth itself, that is still a risky process. Mm. And I don't really know how people do it. I, I give props to people who are parents, but I have no idea. I have no desire to figure out what it's like for myself. And and I just want to say that that's okay too. Parenthood is beautiful, but child free can be beautiful too. You know, Jenny. But twenty years ago, I I thought I was going to be someone who was going to want to have kids. And as time has gone on, I'm I'm increasingly becoming someone who is probably not going to have kids and is probably making that choice. I do waver from time to time. It's part of the privilege of being a man. I can wait a little bit longer to, to actually make a finalized choice on this front. I have friends who are in their 50s who only started having kids in their 50s. So I, wow. I, I know I know that um, I know that I still have time, but but I'm also getting closer to that point where I I don't think that that being a parent is going to be for me. And if I was going to be vulnerable and lay this on the table, I think my disability does have something to do with it. Um, I know this may upset some people who think that disability should only be ever talked about positively, but there are a couple of realities um, to my situation, which is I can't drive. And not being able to drive uh, when you have a child can put a lot of burden on your partner or it just might be something that is very difficult for you to do. And listen, there are plenty of parents who've raised their kids without being able to drive, but it, it, it becomes a matter of complexity, and it's something that I think about. I also think about the fact that I'm legally blind. Um, it's hard for me to, to keep track. Like if I brought my kid to a park or a bigger space, I might have trouble actually keeping track of my kid, and then I think about that. And then there's also just the reality of albinism, right? What, what the disability that you and I share is a condition that's genetic, and I would be passing on 
my genetics and I'd be passing on, if not albinism explicitly, because there's, there's some genetic machinations as to whether or not my child would have albinism, but I would be passing that gene forward. Now, this is me being vulnerable. I'm not trying to disability shame. I'm just trying to talk about it in an honest way and where it lands for me as an individual. How about you? How, how, do, how much does this disability play into your feeling about being child-free? I feel very much the same way around the ability to drive. I got a dog a few years ago. And I, I, again, I'm not trying to make light of the... Uh, it's it's not comparable, really, having a dog and having a child. But for me, getting a dog further solidified the, some of those things for me. I often worry that my dog is missing out on experiences because I don't drive. Like putting a child into the mix, trying to think of getting all of my daily tasks done with a child on public transportation, that is overwhelming to me. And to to go back to the positive side of things, I think that yes, obviously people with all types of disabilities are out here being incredible parents. Oh, I for sure. For time. sure. Yeah. And and having the lived experience as someone with a disability with albinism, maybe that is a benefit you know, having that lived experience that we can pass down if our child also has a disability, but it does add complexity and it does affect our daily lives and life is difficult anyway. There are also so many bigger picture things, Dave, that I consider because I think when we have these conversations, some people might look at us as selfish or um, I, that's a strong word, but if we look at the housing crisis and climate change, these are bigger picture things that everyone, um, not everyone, but that a lot of people are considering these days mm. when they think about having children now. I, I think I think you hit the nail on the head right there too, right? That housing crisis and climate change is not just the person individually looking inward and saying, can I do this? It begs the question of, should I do this? Should I have kids? That's right. There are so many things to consider. It's incredibly, it's, it's so complex. And I just, again, the expectation that by a certain age, you're going to have a child. I think that we're, we're shifting and priorities are shifting. And I think that that can be a good thing. Do you ever waver? Uh, again, Jenny, I'll, I'll acknowledge my privilege again here that that I have I have time to waver if I want to. I was at one of my friends' um, kids' birthday parties a couple of weeks ago, and it was a lot of people that I went to CJEP and university with, and I I just saw them having like these loving families and these loving, touching moments, and they're building community together. And and you know, in that moment, I'm thinking to myself, you know, like maybe maybe I want to be more than just Uncle Dave, like in this moment. Um, so so I I feel maybe a little bit of that peer pressure, and then of course like the pure Darwinianism of it all, like our purpose in life, since we are microbial bacteria in the sea, was to reproduce, and through plagues and wars and migration and storms and like for for billions of years, genetic hey, material is 2023. Been... <laughs> it's almost 2024. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. But, but you know, like I, I, I do, I think about these things and like I do occasionally waver. And that was my long preamble of asking you a pretty closed ended question. Do you ever waver on your decision? Short answer is no, I don't. I is, would my husband and I produce adorable offspring? Probably. 100%. Would be, right. Would they be strong headed? Would they probably have asthma? Also very likely. But I, unlike you, I don't have those moments of, yes, the, there's a lovely family over there having, um, uh, you know, having a moment, building memories. I don't 
I don't have those feelings of envy in those moments. I do have, you know, I do have, I am really solid in my decision. And I too have been fortunate enough to have access to resources and, and information that have helped me, uh, that have made it possible for me to be child-free at the age of 37. So I want to acknowledge that I have some privilege there as well. I have access to certain things, but I take this really, I take this decision very seriously. Um, you know, I, I'm fortunate enough to be an adoptee. I was adopted. And in the first month of my life, I spent that first month waiting in a hospital for someone to take responsibility for me. Luckily, I have an incredible family. So I just, I know that for sure that parenting can be very difficult. It can be all consuming and it it simply isn't for everyone. So I, I, I'd like to contribute to the Oprah's of the world in normalizing the child-free option. And sure, there's, you know, when you want to carry on your name, some people really have that within them that they want to carry on their name, but I'm more focused on my career and uh, uh, making fun a priority in my life. Mm. Sure. You can do those things as a parent, but I think I'm looking to leave a legacy, a little crumb of a legacy as opposed to uh as opposed to a last name for example or even my genes nobody need, nobody wants my genes i don't have good genes. <laughs> uh, only only stretchy fabric genes uh for me jenny jenny <laughs> the, i i so appreciate the vulnerability that you're showing this morning thank you for opening the door on this conversation and it's one that uh we can have again down the road as well thank you for this thank you dave i really appreciate the time to talk about this that's Jenny Bovard, the host of the Low Vision Moments podcast. Let's bring in Laura Bain for an entertainment report. Uh, no, no palate cleansing between uh, that and this. But Laura, you've got a really interesting story here. Italian opera singing, traditional Syrian glass blowing, Peruvian ceviche. They're all receiving a special designation this week. What's going on? Yes, that's right. And I really enjoyed that conversation between you and Jenny there. But uh, as you mentioned, these items are all being named as part of intangible cultural heritage by UNESCO. Um, so the committee responsible for this list meets every year and they're currently meeting in Botswana. Now, the purpose of the list is to bring awareness to the significance of these cultural practices and to help ensure their protection. So you mentioned a few off the top there, Italian opera singing. I think that's a that's a pretty significant one. Oh, yeah. Um, that a lot of people are familiar with. Uh, traditional Syrian glass blowing, Peruvian ceviche. But the list is incredibly diverse. Um, midwifery in Colombia, loin cloth weaving from the Ivory Coast, the Alpine pasture season in general in Switzerland. Um, so I, I really had a found it very enjoyable going through the list and lots of arts and culture, lots of music and dance. So traditional Polish dance was designated this year. Um, a traditional dance in Palestine that I don't want to mispronounce D-A-B-K-E-S, I don't, or K-E-H, I don't know if it's Deb K, and uh, also a poetic and musical art form from Morocco, M-A-L-H-U-N, Malhun. I apologize to anyone out there who's yelling <laughs> at their device. <laughs> um, nothing on there from Canada. Now, I was doing some digging, and Canada, of course, has UNESCO World heritage sites. And I know here in Nova Scotia, we have a, a dark sky zone that's uh, protected by UNESCO, but I'm not sure that that Canada has designated um, mm. culturally significant UNESCO um, items. I'm wondering if there's anything 
that you would want to put on that list? Yeah, I mean, I, 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 I do think there are probably some Canadian cultural practices or, 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 or cultural trends that would make up part of the broader tapestry. Because I, th I think what this list gets at, and maybe some of the history of this list, is that culture is a tapestry made up of all these in individual activities that make places and spaces and my preamble of saying I, I think about a couple Canadian musical traditions that probably deserve some acknowledgement in and of themselves and one of them is not far from you and I would call that sort of the Celtic folk Atlantic Canadian music scene. I, I know that's kind of broad and, and not particularly specific, but I do think there's a very particular sound that comes out of places like Newfoundland and Labrador, that comes out of New Brunswick and Nova Scotia and Prince Edward Island that really is that that Celtic folk scene. And then if I was thinking about something like very particular, indigenous throat singing from Northern Canada mm -hmm. in the Arctic, I, I, I would say like these are these are practices or cultural touchstones that, that are unique to where they're from, but that have a broader appeal across the culture. Oh yeah, absolutely. And those were some that I thought of myself and certainly some of the like folk traditions in Newfoundland. Mummering, for example, comes to mind and Cape Breton fiddle music and a yeah. lot of the uh, kind of Acadian and Mi'kmaq culture stuff here. So um, for sure. Um, now, another question I have is whether a UNESCO designation makes you more interested in learning about or exploring a practice or a place. <laughs> For the sake of uh, keeping this short, I would say probably not. I, 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 th I think I think what I'm looking for in planning my vacations is uh, affordability, ease of getting there, and uh, can I watch football while I'm there? <laughs> I know I'm being flippant with your super, your super genuine, <laughs> sincere question. <laughs> No, that's fair. I think that it does kind of interest me, but um, yeah, when I'm traveling, it's something that comes up a lot, like whether something's a UNESCO designation, but I would like to see some way where there's attention brought to more of these uh, kind of things on this list that there were, you know, I would say a, a good three quarters of them I'd never heard of. So I'd love to see like a, an annual sort of documentary or something like that, where, mm. uh, you know, you could learn more about them. Right on. Hey, Laura, you're so good at digging up these interesting stories. Thank you for this. Have a lovely Thursday. Talk to you tomorrow. Thanks, Dave. You too. That is Laura Bain at the Entertainment Desk. Coming up after the break, a couple of Auditor Generals, Provincial Auditor Generals, released reports yesterday that uh, bear a little bit of extra examination. So I'll have those stories for you in the Regional News Update. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv and in audio form at amiplus.ca. I'm Dave Brown. It's Thursday, December the 7th, 2023. Coming up in the second hour of the show, the Game Awards are taking place tonight. Marco Flala will tell you all about it. And May-December is a new film on Netflix starring Natalie Portman and Julianne Moore. Michael McNeely has a review. But the hour begins with the regional news update. 
Starting in the territories, newly elected members of the Northwest Territories Legislature will gather today to choose their new Premier. Karen Rebo lays out the process. The territory doesn't have political parties. Under its consensus-style government, MLAs run as independents and meet to choose a premier and members of cabinet from among themselves. The premier then assigns the ministers their portfolios, and the remaining members function as the opposition. The Northwest Territory's general election, originally set for October, was delayed to November 14th because of wildfires. This past fire season saw 70% of the territory's population under an evacuation order at some point, including the 20,000 residents of the capital, Yellowknife. Karen Rebo, the Canadian Press. A little bit of editorial here. I know that things in terms of governance are not perfect in the North, but what an interesting and great ideal of politics. We don't have parties, we come to decisions together, we work via consensus to build good policy. What a, what a wild concept that you want politicians working together to build consensus policy. I mean. Anyway, moving over to the prairies, Saskatchewan's Auditor General says the wait list is growing for people who need brain and spine surgeries. The of the seven... 122 people currently waiting for a neurosurgeon. About one-third of them have been waiting for more than a year. Auditor General Tara Clement believes the government needs to analyze how they are deploying resources. They need to do a better analysis to determine if do they have the staff, do they have the physicians, do they have them in the right part of the province, um, and as a result, is there improvements that could be made? She says the government also needs to look at changing operating room scheduling. Over to Ontario. Ontario's Auditor General says one in five patients who visited the province's emergency departments were only there because they did not have a family doctor. Nick Stravopoulos notes that emergency room wait times are trending in the wrong direction. Emergency department wait times were relatively stable over the last 10 years leading up to the pandemic, but They've, they've seen an increase since then, up to 30 minutes compared to 10 years ago. The AG says a common theme across all healthcare is a lack of staffing. A common theme in these three audits was that the shortages of nurses and other staff challenges is, is an issue. A province-wide strategy to help hospitals and long-term care homes maintain appropriate staffing levels is critical for the sector's success moving forward. Stravopoulos points out that hospitals are becoming reliant on nursing agencies to fill gaps, which comes at a significantly higher cost. That's your look at the regional news. Here comes Brock Richardson with a sports chat. you want to start in the para ice hockey world the para hockey cup is still going on with a couple notable results to share yes they are and uh, i'll start with uh, china defeating czechia four to one um and you know what i have to say that the um the gap is closing a little bit more on these other countries china is coming into their own they were competitive against Canada in the round robin. Uh, they still didn't come out with the win against Canada, but they are becoming more and more competitive. 
Um, then if we move on to the other um, last round robin game, which saw Canada versus U.S., uh, U.S. beat Canada uh, 5-0 yesterday in the uh, round robin. Uh, Dave, this is becoming more and more clear to me that Canada is losing ground rapidly against the United States program. Like, this is becoming a real, real story. Like, before, these games used to be very competitive and very, you know, one time one side would beat the other and so on and so forth. But since they brought on uh, Brody Roybal and company onto their team, uh, Brody Roybal is an individual who... um, from the states and he came from uh, um the the wars and 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 representing his country that way and he's lost his legs because of it and since they brought on him he is just a tremendous leader and Canada cannot keep up with these am- amputees that are on the United States program just because of the sheer speed that's happening mm. and i think that's a lot of the concern that's happening right now at the moment but as we sit here uh, Canada will play China in the uh, semifinal, which will happen on uh, uh, Friday. And then United States will play Czechia in their semifinal. And then the two winners will take on each other on TSN 5 on uh, Saturday afternoon. So very cool that you can catch that if you have the luxury of having that channel. Yeah, you're kind of becoming a broken record Richardson every time Canada and the U.S. face off in a pair of ice hockey because, uh, yeah, it seems like it's not just a matter of the U.S. beating Canada. It's that they, they seem to be keeping them off the scoreboard pretty much uh, without fail, right? It, it, it's it's not just that the U.S. is winning these games, like you said. It's that they're dominating these games. Yeah, yeah, and Paul Rosen, who uh was uh the winning goaltender when they won uh the gold medal in uh Torino the pair ice hockey program he's now turned to the broadcasting side of things and he does uh some work with TSN and some stuff and yesterday he uh was doing a live and he's honestly very dejected at what he saw he's there he's on the ground and he just he said uh much the same as what I said just U.S. is just far and away better, and if it wasn't for their goaltending yesterday, Paul Rosen said this game could have been uh, nine, ten, nothing. Yeah. Uh, by the time we're done, so it's it's really becoming a real problem that Canada really has to look. I don't even know. I don't even know what to tell you. They need to do like I just I don't know. And I mean, they're they brought in Greg Westlake, who who's won a gold medal, and they he's part of the coaching staff. They brought in. Terrorism, who's the part of the women's program. They're they're trying to throw everything at this uh to help this, but it just seems sometimes you just gotta tip your cap to your opponent and say, right now, you guys are simply just above us. Even even in Paris sports Brock, athleticism matters. Like like it like it does. I I know that like sometimes that might sound ableist, but athleticism matters, and there's no amount of tactics or strategy that will over time offset athleticism. No, and you're absolutely right. And and the the United States program, there's uh, more money because yeah, they tons can, tons can can pour those monies in. The NHL organizations are involved with with the U.S. pro. Like it is. Not every NHL organization, but there are some. A, that are a lot do, yeah. Like it, it's and yeah. it's and it's not just pair ice hockey; it's blind hockey too. NHL teams in the United States have partnered deeply with a couple organizations. Yeah, and that's sort of where Canada, 
I think is missing and a lot of their veterans that are coming from different things and going over and fighting for countries. A lot of the Canadians are saying, no, man, I'm not interested in, in, in playing para ice hockey. I just, I want to come back home and, and live my life for what it's worth. Whereas the USA program, they're getting guys coming off of, of bad situations and really playing really well. Uh, and Brody Royball is an example of that where he's just, He's the he's leading the charge and nobody can catch him. Like when he's when he's in the offensive zone, there's nobody on that Canadian team that can even catch him. Yeah. And that's that's an issue. It it probably speaks more broadly to what the United States is doing in regards to hockey development more generally as well. Sort of under the overall umbrella of USA hockey, they're doing a really great job on development, player development in both mainstream, para, blind, like you women's, like you name it. And right now USA hockey is eating hockey Canada for breakfast in terms of our development models. And, and, and it's so clear yes fine team canada is still winning world juniors and yes team canada is still winning gold medals at olympics but that that gap is narrowing and narrowing and narrowing and narrowing every single year and it's because the united states has spent money resources and time developing a model that works and, and like and, 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 they, and they deserve credit for that and I also, they do they absolutely 100 do but i also want to say that hockey canada has been under <laughs> a, a gun that, that, you know, we don't need to dive into right now. But I think that's part of it, too. Hockey Canada has had to really divert their focuses into a lot of things that have happened off ice for World Juniors in different years and things like that. And so when you do that and you divide your attention and have to spend money in places that you weren't expecting to, well, the money's got to come from somewhere. And sadly, right now, Dave, what I'm looking at is the money's coming from the Para Ice Hockey Program. And it's not going back into the development as much as other nations yeah. like the U.S. And, and listen, China, like they're they're coming. There's going to come yeah. a day where yeah. China or one of those teams is going to beat Team Canada. And everyone that's when everyone's going to say this is a real problem. But those other European, Asian countries are coming, not as fast as some would expect, but they are coming. And one day I'm going to come on and do a report and tell you that one of these teams beat Canada. I don't want to do it, but I just... I feel it coming. I really do. Yeah, And Brock, it's, again, to, as sort of a closing thought here, wasn't that one of the threads that you and I pulled out a little bit out of the Parapan American games as well? The success of Brazil at those games? Yes, they sent an army of athletes to the games, but they had a ton of success, right? So you've got all these developing countries with gargantuan populations that are deeply investing in their parasport culture. That's right. And it's just, it's not being developed at, at our level, like we're still fighting for equality for medals, you know, and winning money the same amount that the Olympians win. And it's just it's becoming very obvious that we are separating ourselves. We used to be uh, in the Pan, Pan American region. We used to be in the top three, like regularly for the for those events. And now it's becoming that we're getting further and further down yeah. the page. Both volume, but I also say that funding has part of it yeah. because the governments back their athletes. Brock, uh, deep dive there on Parasport. Thank you for this. Have a great day. <laughs> Thank you. That's Brock Richardson at the AMI Sports Desk. Coming up after the break, the Game Awards are taking place tonight. Marco Flalo tells you all about it. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv.
Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. It's been an incredible year in the world of video gaming, and uh, gamers are still pretty pumped up, even just getting that little taste of Grand Theft Auto 6 that dropped this week. Well, tonight, the Game Awards are taking place. They recognize the outstanding contributions in the gaming industry. Mark Aflalo has some more details on this. Mark is the host of Access Tech Live. Hey, good morning, Mark. Good morning, Dave. How are you? Mark, I'm great. Uh, it's no secrets to anybody who watches or listens frequently. I am someone who enjoys playing video games. But yep. how does accessibility tie into the story of the game of the game awards? Well, number one, this is one of the first years that in these particular awards we're seeing an accessibility category itself. So it's going to be honoring the very best in accessibility. I know Steve Saylor, who line gamer, oh, who amazing. I know is on a lot of these shows. He's he's going to be attending these awards and and talking about things from that perspective as well. But it it, it really fits in because there's about half a dozen games this past year that have really focused on accessibility. And I'm talking about Diablo 4, uh, Forza Motorsports, Hi-Fi Rush, Spider-Man 2, Mortal Kombat, and Street Fighter 6. These are games that are nominated in that category of, of uh, you know, excelling in accessibility. And these are going to be on show. And the fact of the matter is, is that accessibility is taking a little bit more center stage when it comes to gaming with game studios spending more time on it and more attention in the mainstream media, which is why it's important that they're making their, their place in this awards. Mark, you, you ran through those titles a little bit fast there. I'm, I'm going to have you do it again, but I but I, again. but I but I think the lens that should be applied there is pretty much every single one of those games is like not just a major developer game. These are AAA major successful commercial games. Like like this isn't like oh, yeah. oh we had to scrape the barrel a little bit to find accessibility acknowledgments in the video game world. It's like no, how about the best selling video games of the year are being acknowledged for their accessibility. Well, I mean, think about this, Forza Motorsports, it's a driving game. It's a first person sit down, drive a car, and it is completely accessible. I mean, there you're talking about audio notifications for everything that's happening in the experience. This was one of the first videos that I remember Steve Saylor posting where he was in tears because he was able to win a race. You know, uh, something that he'd never been able to do, obviously, in real life, but in video games, completely unheard of you know look at a game like you know uh spider-man 2 spider-man incredible franchise oh, yes amazing. it's spider-man people have been going nuts about this again another game where you you know if you try to if you try to visualize what the game is about you know swinging from side to side how to even make that accessible is just so absolutely cool and an, an incredible feat and the fact that they're not only doing it but making it making sure that every element of the game is accessible is just absolutely amazing yeah and it's 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 to me to me again it's it's impressive I, I i acknowledge that sometimes there's some back and forth there's some progress and some backsliding i i, I don't mean to take a big swipe at ea sports but they always <laughs> seem to take one step forward two steps back and then two two leaps forward and then one step back like they like they, they, they get ahead of the game and they fall behind the game but but i would say like my general assertion on the industry is there's progress yeah. and it's been pretty good progress in regards to making games more accessible or at least offering accessibility features. And sometimes that's on the hardware front too, right? It's not yeah. just the game developing, it's giving people the equipment and tools to play games regardless of disability. 
Well, you think about this past year. Now we saw the surface, the uh, the Xbox Adaptive Kit a couple of years ago. Sony released their accessibility kit this year for the PlayStation. So that's a new addition to the game here. It's showing a commitment not only from the game studios that are now really baking it into when they're developing a game. They're now starting to think about accessibility the same way Microsoft has been doing about software, Google, Apple, et cetera, et cetera. It, it, they, they're finally getting the spotlight and realizing that if they do this, it gets them more attention and gets them a, a larger user base. But the fact that you get the buy-in from the manufacturers of the consoles themselves, and of course, on the PC side, people have been creating their own adaptive controllers for yeah, a very, very yeah. long time. It, it's it's really cool. It, I, I think it, it speaks to just a little bit more. I'm going to use this word incorrectly. Uh, customization, that at least some game designers and hardware designers have become more open to the idea of there's more than one way to play a game. Yeah, I mean, and and I, I hate to always go back to Forza, but this is a driving game. Yeah. This is not yeah. something that you would naturally make the connection with, you know, low vision. Or it just it just doesn't it doesn't normally compute. And the fact that they did that and the fact that Microsoft is there helping to make things happen says a lot about where we're going with this industry. And it's giving a lot of people who weren't able to game before and now able to play these AAA games um, a, a new sense of, of vigor and excitement because they know that new games coming out are going to be accessible and they're going to be able to enjoy them just like everybody else. Yeah. Like they should have been able to do 10 years ago. But, <laughs> you know, we are where we are and and we'll we'll take it and we'll we'll take the win and move forward, right? Yeah, we 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 take progress. We take progress uh where where we can find them. Like that like we, we take we take yeah. our wins. We take our wins where we can find them, Mark. That that's just that's just the way that's just the way it is sometimes. Okay, for folks who are gaming enthusiasts, uh where can yeah. they go catch the awards tonight? Okay, well, it's very simple. You can either go to the Game Awards YouTube channel, which is youtube.com slash Awards, or thegameawards.com. It's streaming at 7 p.m. Eastern, I believe. Um, really, really cool stuff. I look forward to that category. I look forward to the whole thing. It's going to be available both in ASL and Describe Video as well, so you can cool. find a feed that works for you. Right on. Uh, Mark, speaking of a feed that works for me, Access Tech Live uh, <laughs> hitting the airwaves this afternoon, noon Eastern time. I saw you shared uh, the interview that you and I did uh, last week on the show on YouTube. I watched it this morning morning because I am indeed someone who is vain and likes uh, listening to himself uh, talk and looking at his beautiful face. But what yeah. do you and Steven have lined up today? Uh, Sean's going to be joining us. Sean Priest is going to be joining us, of course, co-host of Double Tap, uh, the podcast. And we're going to be talking all about gift guides for the holidays. You got a couple of weeks left to do that shopping. And uh, if you got someone in your life that's hard to shop for, we'll hopefully give you a couple ideas throughout the the uh, the, the uh, you know variety of price ranges. Oh, don't remind me. I have uh, <laughs> not bought a single thing yet. So I am uh, I am behind, there, the, I'm behind the game, Mark, behind the game. Hey, uh, Mark, listen, have a lovely uh, day around Montreal. Uh, beautiful day. The menorahs are going to be lit up everywhere on the first day of Hanukkah. So enjoy some time. Enjoy some time around my old city and uh, talk to you soon. Thanks, Dave. That's Mark Aflalo talking to you from Montreal, the co-host of Access Tech Live. The show airs Thursdays, noon Eastern time on AMI-tv. This weekend on The Pulse, a new book explores what blindness can reveal about the relationship between humans and animals. Joy Gupta will chat with Rod Mikalko about his book, Letters to Smokey. That's The Pulse, weekends, 2 p.m. Eastern time on AMI-audio or on your favorite podcasting platform. Coming up next, May, December is a Netflix film starring Natalie Portman and Julianne Moore. Michael McNeely will share his review, but first, here is the Parasport Update with Greg Westlake. 
Hello and welcome back to the Parasport Update, produced in collaboration with the Canadian Paralympic Committee. I'm Nathan Clement. As the 2023 Parapan American Games concluded last week, many of Canada's summer athletes began their winter competition hibernation, leading the way for Canada's Stars of the Frost to come out and play. Opening up the month of December, the puck has been dropped in Quimisipis, New Brunswick for the 2023 Para Ice Hockey Cup. Canada faced off in their first game against China. Scoring early, the Canadian team cruised to a 4-1 win. Canada is now set to battle Czechia and their rivals, the United States, in round-robin play. The 15th edition of the tournament spans from December 3rd to 9th. All the action can be found on the Hockey Canada website. You may even see the familiar face of Greg Westlake coaching for Canada. Transitioning from the present to the future, the Lethbridge Minor Hockey Association will be hosting an opportunity for everyone to try para-ice hockey. The sessions are free with all the equipment provided. The next event is happening on December 18th at the Nicholas Saran Ice Arena in Lethbridge. Soaring over the Rockies, we land in the interior BC where Greg Stewart has re-entered the circle and announced his return to shot put as he aims for Paris Paralympic glory. That's our time for this edition of the Paris Sport Update presented by AMI-audio. Check back next week for more news from the world of adapted sports. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. May-December is a film available on Netflix. It stars Natalie Portman and Julianne Moore. Before I go any further, I do want to flag a content warning on this film. It explores ideas of underage relationships and coercion, so it may be sensitive to some viewers. Michael McNeely has seen the film and has thoughts. Before I welcome him in, here's a clip from the trailer. Two women meet outside a house. It's such a pleasure to meet you. You are so sweet. We're so happy to have you. Thank you for doing this. It's so generous. Well, I want you to tell the story right, don't I? You're taller. You look taller on television, but we're basically the same size. We're basically the same. Feels like things just settled down, and now y'all are making a movie. It's a very complex and human story. I think it's hard to trust that you're going to represent Gracie as she was. I'm going to try. From Todd Haynes. Do you remember when you first met? You came to the pet store looking for a job. It was summer after sixth grade. Seventh. Seventh. Director of Carol, Far From Heaven, Safe. Why do you want to play me? When they sent me the script, I thought, here is a woman with a lot more to her than I remember from the tabloids. What would make a 36-year-old woman have an affair with a seventh grader? People, they like see me as a victim. I wanted it. That is part of the trailer for May-December. Michael McNeely is an entertainment critic. He's in studio alongside his intervener, Jillian. Hey, good morning, Michael. Good morning. How are you? Michael, I'm good. I should clarify that the movie depicts the relationship of this couple as adults well into their marriage. The film makes reference to their past as an adult-child relationship. The movie is loosely inspired by the story of Mary Kay Letourneau. How did the filmmakers expand on the complexity of her story? Let's get because we'll probably need a, a book about the size of a Bible to get through this. But Mary Kay Letourneau, as you know, was some... Um, jailed for having underage relations and perhaps rape of 
her grade one and grade six student. Um, she carried the baby to term, and that was the first child. She defied a no-contact order to pursue having a family, and they did have a family. And this film, um, you can think of Julian Moore as Mary Kay, but her name is Gracie. And you can think of Chris Merton as Philly, but his name is Joe. So essentially, that's the main difference. And the other main difference is something that I've been thinking about, is that Mary Kay was a teacher and so had that power over her student. But here, Gracie is, was an employee. She was an employee at the pet store where Joe worked. So that's a little bit less power, but still some power, because you're an older person supervising a younger person who's trying to work for the first time. But it's interesting to think about those differences and why those differences would be here in the first place. The filmmakers chose an interesting approach in the way they told this story through the lens of an actor wanting to portray someone and learning about someone. What did you think about them using that approach to tell the story? That's an interesting approach. I don't know if it's something that I would have picked first to tell this story, but it also leads itself into another story. So Natalie Portman is the actor that is trying to play Gracie slash Mary Kay in a movie, which I'm sure probably will happen to the real Mary Kay at some point. Um, it's interesting because Natalie Portman is playing a sort of predatory character herself because she's preying on the family's, um, I guess, family's sensitive information just so that she can play crazy in the movie. She's snooping around. She's going around the neighborhood. She's knocking on doors. She's asking people. She goes to the pet store, does something very rude at the pet store, which I won't spoil. Um, but she's ultimately just trying to get into the head of Gracie and get into the head of Gracie's her own warped view of things, which may not be anything of what Gracie wanted to do in the first place. What did you think the movie was trying to say about the lengths an actor will go to prepare for a role? Well, just think about all the method actors we know from Jared Leto to Joaquin Phoenix to... Um, Daniel, even, da Daniel Day-Lewis? Yes, Bitman, and Mar even Marilyn Monroe. Um, I think, ultimately, that's just one acting method. I think it's... For my controversial take, I don't think it's always necessary. I think it's perfectly fine to push acting as a nine-to-five job, turn it off afterwards, and just be normal, with quotation marks. Um, I think sometimes people can get so far into it. I know that Jared Leto sent poop to his castmates um, just to just to be the choker. I don't really get that. Um, I think you know there's a there's there's something called real acting, and then there's the lesser acting. I don't think that's appropriate to really classify acting styles in that regard because I don't think there's one acting style that's truly the best. I think everyone has different methods for preparing for war. Obviously, this film was touching on themes of power dynamics, coercion, rape culture. What stood out to you in the way the film approached those themes? Well, I think we need to go ahead and give 
Rainbow Daniels quiz Martin his first Oscar because I think he deserves it for playing Joe. Um, in the first hour, he's as emotionless as a vacuum cleaner, but he opens up after after a while, and it's devastating because when he opens up, he's immediately shut down. So I think that this film showcases that men can be victims of rape, they can be victims of sexual assault, they can be victims of gaslighting, and it's time that we started recognizing that because this is a story that we don't often tell. And um, so how I would summarize this movie to other people, I would say those three main characters, those two victims and two perpetrators. So it's, it's also interesting, too, because you can be both a victim and a perpetrator. So I think, I think this film, even though it may seem trashy and, and like an 80s melodrama, I think it does have some important things to say. You mentioned that you were really impressed with the performance of Charles Melton, the actor. Certainly, he's in there with some heavyweights as well. Julianne Moore, Oscar winner. Natalie Portman, I don't know if Natalie's won an Oscar, but she's darn been in contention and a lot of great movies. How were the performances in this film? I think everyone has drawn performances. But of course, we would expect nothing less from Julianne Moore oh, and yeah. Natalie Portman. Oh, man. So. And there's even rumors that Natalie Portman may come back to Star Wars. Um, and it's also funny because Natalie Portman's playing an actor. She is also an actor, so it's always interesting to watch actors play actors. Because um, she even makes a chunk that she's not going to get paid because it's an indie film. Um, so I think, I think uh, Charles, I think you said his name is Charles. I thought his name was Chris. Um, but either Mr. Merton, I think he, he stands he stands up to these two power titans, and he just is able to convey the emotions that are required. Um, I think the children also do a good job, and I would like to see the children of the family have more of a showcase, but I know that the story is not really about them. But I would also be curious about how this kind of family would have worked. Michael, I'm going to ask you uh, <laughs> almost an unfair question, but I want to talk about Julianne Moore a little bit more because because I'm such a fan. The, this question, obviously, it it, it, lean, it leans into some bias. Is she maybe the most underrated actor of the last 25 years? But like like we're talking about Oscar, someone who's won Oscars, who's had uh, like 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 box office success. But I don't think people talk about her in the way they talk about, say, like a Margot Robbie, for example, in the last decade, or, you know, more broadly over 50 years, someone like Meryl Streep. You know, I still remember watching Julianne Moore be blown up in the green in the greenhouse in that uh, the cradle will walk you. Yeah, 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 called. yeah. And then I remember watching her in Children of Men, where she only lasted for two minutes. But... Well, an amazing two minutes it was. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I, I, I saw her in Kiwi, and uh, I know we can't replace Rest in Peace Piper Louie, we can't replace her, but she tried. She tried her best. Um, I think, you know, we've, we've grown up with Julianne Moore. She's, in, she's 63 years old now, and I hope that she can continue challenging herself with more and more rules. Because you know what, she's brave, but she wouldn't want you to call her that. Because that's just acting, that's her understanding of yeah. acting. She says that 
If a wall is too easy, then it's not worth it, and I have to do the ones that are challenging, because this is my job, and this is, this is my art. And so she played this person, Mary Kay, who—or not Mary Kay, I can't say Mary Kay. She played Gracie. Um, and Gracie is this, this conflicted bag of emotions. Um, she doesn't think that she did anything wrong, but I think subconsciously she does know that she did something wrong, but mm. she can't admit it. Mm. And she's struggling with depression and anxiety. And, you know, you've obviously you've made your bed as a, as a predator of children, but here you are, you're still alive and you still have People magazine and Vanity Fair trying to do performances on you and take photographs of you and talk about your house. So it's all this complicated yeah, stuff, and yeah. she nails it. Yeah, I'm just blown away every every time I catch a Julianne Moore movie. I'm like, you're you're the best. <laughs> you're you're the best. Uh, Michael, your final thoughts on May December. What do you think? I hope that May December will open up a conversation, but I also realize that it's not a movie for everyone. Mm. I think it's perfectly fine to skip it if you're not feeling it. Um, there are many other Julian Moore movies. You can watch Riverdale for Mr. Merton, and he will probably do something very soon, I hope. And Natalie Portman, she's also great. So you can find all these performers and other things. But if you're ready to do the work, if you're ready to think about this May, December, you can think about it from January to December. Okay, all right. Uh, Michael, let's uh, finish on one last thought here. This is from the entertainment industry more broadly in the movie theater going experience. There have been a couple incidents that have taken place at local theaters in the greater Toronto area. Theatergoers were sprayed with an unknown substance and had to evacuate. Similar incidents with pepper spray uh, took place at a theater earlier this year at Surrey, BC. How are you feeling right now about safety at movie theaters? I am devastated and appalled by the lack of humanity shown by people who are just trying to appreciate a good movie. Yeah. Um, I think it's important for all of our viewers and people with disabilities to know that they should, do, they should go and talk to an uh, employee of the movie theater if they feel concerned, ask them about their emergency evacuation procedures before yeah. shows, and then ensure that those procedures are followed if necessary. Michael, um, thank you for this. Have a great day. Thank you for this review. Have a good day. That's Michael McNeely. He reviewed May, December. The film is rated R, and you can stream it on Netflix. Coming up after the break, a whole bunch of words have been mispronounced in 2023. Alex Smythe has uh, a bit of a, I guess it's a news story that rounds up a few of them. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv and in beautiful audio at amiplus.ca. Thank you for stopping by wherever you might be in the moment, or maybe you're listening on demand on the AMI-audio podcast network. If you're searching for Now with Dave Brown in your search bar. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and review. And if you really, really, really like it, share a link on social media and tag me on Twitter, 
at Dave Brown Radio. I don't think I've posted on Twitter in like forever, but I will retweet you if you tag me in a post and said, Dave Brown did a really good job here. Or even if you said Dave Brown did a really bad job here, I'll retweet that too. I'm a little bit of a masochist like that. Let's talk about some other AMI programming. Kelly and Ramya hit the airwaves at 2 p.m. Eastern this afternoon. Ramya and within is the co-host of that show and can offer up a bit of a preview. Hey, good morning, Ramya. Good morning, Dave. Yeah, we've got lots going on. It's a Thursday show. We have um, uh, Mary Mamaliti coming on to talk to us about... Uh, hold on, let me tell you what it is. Okay, there you go. She's talking about budget-friendly gifts for the foodie in your family. Mm -hmm. So that's always a good conversation. Uh, also, we have the Golden Apple Awards coming out. So there are nominations for apps, for games, all with accessibility in mind, blind low vision. Um, community has, has you know, put in their votes. So we're going to talk more about that with Mike Fair. And there's stuff going on in Nova Scotia. There's a special event being put on by the um, Coalition, Disability Coalition of Nova Scotia. So Laura Bain's going to tell us more about that. You know, for a foodie in your life, for someone who's a cook, you can never go wrong with a wooden spoon, a spatula, or a set of tongs. You, you yes. just you just never, you, you know, if someone receives those, they're always going to be delighted. Alex Smythe, you're a, you're a cook, you cook at home. I bet if you got tongs, a spatula, or a wooden spoon for the holidays, you would be delighted. Yeah, Dave, uh, you know, a good set of wooden utensils for oh, cooking yep. is unlike anything yep. else. I, I got some like a few years ago and i still love them the tongs you, if you get a good pair of tongs something that has a good grip not gonna fold something that you can really use and not have to use too much grip strength oh, oh. it's unlike anything else oh, i tell you amazing. it makes your life so much easier when you're cooking i think i've told you guys before that every time i pull my tongs out of the drawer i sing the tong song to it <laughs> I, I, to, to cisco's the thong song yeah <laughs> where'd i put my tongs baby my tong 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 tongs uh before i get us every I, time huh? before i, I, I rumia i swear to you every time if you guys set up surveillance cameras and surveillance microphones in my apartment as if it was big brother by the way no one would want to watch that show i walk around with my pants <laughs> off way too much but like but like you would 100 percent every time i reach for the tongs you would get me singing that song anyway just, this is the yeah. best <laughs> i have to start making more things using tongs <laughs> I, I do. The, you always have to test the tongs too. You always got to do a couple uh, test clicks to make sure oh, the tongs work. Hundred percent. Like that is a rule of adult life. Yeah. It's the same thing. Whenever you pull out a stud finder to look for a spot to put a picture on the wall, the first thing you have to do is point it at yourself and go, "Found yeah. it." Yep, exactly. <laughs> right. I have been missing out oh. on living alone life. <laughs> oh my gosh. Oh my not be gosh. Doing it right. Okay. Okay. Alex, uh, the conversation yeah. is not about the songs that I sing to my utensils, but <laughs> rather mispronounced words. What do you have on deck here? Yeah. So, as part of these year end wrap ups and end of year lists, a new one has come from Babbel, the language uh, app and site, and they've released their list of the most mispronounced words of 2023. Charles de Ledesma has more with this report. Noelle Wolf, a live teacher at language learning platform Babbel, says she tries to be exposed to a wide array of languages because, as we see this year, a lot of mispronounced words are from different cultures. An example, the onomatic name of the Hawaiian volcano, Kilauea. That's the volcano that erupted several times this year. And I think it's really great because it shows like sounds that maybe we are not used to because it's from the Hawaiian island, of course. 
And now it's so integrated in our vocabulary because it's been in the news the whole year. Another one that's caught Wolf's eye is Stone of Schoon, an apparently obscure royal term which became centre stage on May the 6th in Britain. The Stone of Schoon is actually a word that has existed for a long time, which is why it's so great that it's in this year's list because it shows the influence of recent events like the coronation this year. Charles Duladesma, London. Yeah, so this seems all a bit, you know, silly to me, just the idea of, oh, we have mispronounced words and we're just pulling in from different cultures, different obscure references, things like that. But one thing I also loved about this in this report is that this list was put together with the help of the British Inter Institute of Verbatim Reporters, which <laughs> just adds to the whole overall <laughs> silliness. Charles Ledesma, graduating member of the Verbatim Reporters. <laughs> Exactly, Dave. So, in honor of this silly list, I, I wanted to find out from all of us on this roundtable, we all work in media, we're all on television, we all have to be pretty uh, comfortable in speaking and, and covering a lot of different Oof. words, but are there any words, and how often do you guys come across words that trip you up? For me, it's pretty much on, on the regular, but Ramya, what about you? How often are you tripping over words? This is an amazing <laughs> opportunity for me to start blaming Screen Reader for absolutely <laughs> everything. Thank you so much for bringing this conversation to the table, Alex, because uh, often, and it's not even the big words, okay? It's just contextually voiceover, and I, I refuse to move from voiceover to other Screen Readers because it does a great job. It sounds like an actual human in my ear. Anyway, however, it will screw me up with like lives and lives right so when i'm contextually oh, yeah. reading mm -hmm. it won't say the thing in the right context it'll say lives when it's supposed to be lives and vice versa there's no rhyme or reason there's no like go-to that it goes to and if i'm reading verbatim it tosses like everything out the window same thing with read read um oh yeah there are lots of examples like this and yeah just like things that you wouldn't you would think are just like very everyday use of words. It will s pronounce incorrectly. So you either got to go in and change it with who the hell's doing that Ugh. or um, remember that it does this and then not screw it up while you're reading on air. So that's my biggest complaint. But I don't necessarily like I can't think of words that I struggle with. I can think of words oh. that Kelly struggles with. Oh, ooh, like what? Like what? Let's 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 blame Kelly a little bit. What does Kelly struggle with? <laughs> His most famous one is kudos, which he actually pronounces kudos with the L E S, and that's the best one so far. I can't do more than one. He's gonna he's gonna. Yeah, yeah, no. We, I, <laughs> I, I I was so delighted to see Kelly in the uh, the kitchen yesterday ahead of the holiday party. I was bummed I couldn't give him a hug because I just you know in case I was yeah. not a hundo P, I didn't want to uh, pass anything on to the old uh, Kelly bear there. But oh my gosh, great to see Kelly. Alex, uh, you basically listen to me stumble over the script every single day, so you know that I struggle with every single word, but the one that really gets me, I do not know why I cannot get this word out, Canada Day. Anytime I try wow. to say the word Canada Day, I need to slow down to a molasses pace to get it out of my mouth so it doesn't blurt off as Canada Day. Listen, that Canada Day. Like, I can't do it. I can't do it unless I slow down, Alex. I, I know. There's. Hey, you want to know what's even worse? I struggle with enunciation. 
literally the I... word about uh, pronouncing and i struggle with it <laughs> mightily on every single i literally in preparation for saying the word i had to repeat it in my head six times while both of you were talking that's how much i struggle with it <laughs> now obviously part of it there is the element is like okay you know the hearing loss and that plays a role into it yeah it's just there's some words you know as, as you mentioned dave with candidate it's just how they're constructed phonetically you got the d's you got the a's and you have to repeat it, and it's used in different ways you have to work so quickly yeah sometimes it's just a real struggle yeah it's it's yeah. interesting do do you guys find there might be particular uh language trees or linguistic backgrounds that you really struggle yep. with like like i i'm i'm okay with a lot of like central european stuff some of the latin languages i'm okay with because of my background in french but i i just for the life of me when there when there's so many apostrophes and syllables i really struggle with a lot of indigenous a lot of indigenous words i really really struggle alex what about you uh, yeah so i for me it's really with the tongue movement so it's not necessarily that there's specific trees but like you know a lot of the latin languages and even languages like german where there's like you have to use the back of the throat or you have to really oh, create this tongue this tongue shape i struggle with that and I, I i can't get that right like positioning of of the tongue in the mouth so i can never quite do that uh so those are really the ones where i struggle or notice that i struggle the most Ramya, what about you I can imitate well, so I can pick up like how things are supposed to be said if they're said in, you know, like the ways that they're supposed to be. So if somebody says it, I can clean it up and say it myself. However, if it's written and then I'm supposed to uh, learn how to say it because, you know, this is what these two letters mean. I can't. I can't retain how things are supposed to be said based on how they're spelt or just like recognition, familiarity, that sense of things. But I also think in English I struggle because <laughs> because like things that end with like a BT, you know, like debt or yep. Yep. that compared to something like death. Kelly teases me about this all the time where he says they all sound the same. Like when you say it, I'm like, I can't enunciate the difference of the THs. Guys, really appreciate this one. Thank you so much for the vulnerability. Lots of vulnerability on the show today. That's all the time there is until tomorrow morning at 9 a.m. Eastern time. I'm Dave Brown reminding you to play safe, play fair, but you better not forget to have some fun. Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. I'm Margaret Shepard of the AMI podcast, Tripping On Air. Every month, my co-host Alex Hajar and I spill the tea on what it's really like to live with MS. Watch Tripping On Air on YouTube or download wherever you get your pods.